being originally from South Florida, I, was, I started in the nursery business uh, at about, actually started when I was 14 working for somebody and ended up having my own nursery, ended up buying the land next door to it and actually starting my own nursery. In 1989, uh, it pretty much built up a, you know, a nice business or whatever it is, growing interior foliage which was popular at the time. The nursery was about three and a half acres of greenhouse. Uh, and we grew plants that took, some, some plants you could grow in a year, some plants took three to five years to grow like palm trees or whatever it is. And those we actually grew outside on another four acres or so. And then we would bring them in and get them ready for, for shipping out. And uh, we had a freeze, a Christmas freeze, uh, it hit about 23 degrees and Plants were not killed, but they were damaged pretty heavily. A nice toasting, uh, about a half a million dollars worth. So not enough to throw things away, but enough to interrupt the whole sales cycle for basically the sales season, which is January till about May. After that, we started using a chemical made by DuPont to try to rehab the plants and it was uh, tainted with a little bit of weed killer. So we were essentially killing our plants slowly. And then we had to throw them all away. So we basically wiped out the entire nursery a second time. Then August 24th, uh, 1992, Hurricane Andrew came to visit. By that time, we had filled the nursery back up. We were ready for the sale season. Uh, starting in a few months. Being from South Florida, we've experienced a lot of different little hurricanes, hurricane warnings and things like that. And we, and it was just another one. We, we heard there was something out there, but it really wasn't supposed to hit. So we just didn't pay a lot of attention to it. If it was gonna hit, it'd be a, you know, a nice little breeze and we might have some things fall over. So you make sure things are picked up and not flying objects and like that in the yard. But other than that, we didn't really expect a whole lot. And then all of a sudden it started making a uh, 90 degree turn and it was really, really tight. And the, just going, just going through the area, I mean, it, and it went through fast. If it would have went through slow, we'd seen a lot more damage, but I mean, it just took pine trees. It just took them like a corkscrew and just twisted them off and laid them over. Just thousands of them. This wasn't something that was selected, that was, I was just selected on. I mean, the whole industry got hit, the whole area got hit. Andrew took everything out, just wiped everything out. And uh, I've played a little baseball in my time, and I know that when you get three strikes, you're supposed to get out. So at that point, we started looking for exit strategies. So how do you move on after something like that happens? I mean, Gary basically lost everything he had back to back to back between the freeze, the pesticides, and then the hurricane just coming and wiping out everything. He had nothing left. He had poured himself into that. And I think all of us kind of know, at least to some extent, the idea, the feeling of not getting able to get traction to move forward, right? You're just stuck in the place that you are, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to move an inch out of where you are. So how do you pick up and change your circumstances, change your situation in something like that? My name's Evan, if you're new with us, I'm on staff here at Epic. And for the last five weeks, that's the question we've been asking ourselves. 
We all find ourselves in hopeless situations at some point in life. That's just a fact of living here on earth. But what do you do when you're in the middle of it? How do you find your way out? How do you find light when there is nothing but darkness around you? And so for five weeks, we've looked at different people in the Bible who've been in terrible situations. And what did they do that can kind of give us a clue on how to get out of our own problems? So if you have your Bible this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to look at Job today, and if you're not sure where it is, if you take your Bible and split it down the middle, you'll be pretty close to Psalms, and just go to a little to the left of that, and you'll find Job. We're going to just barely scratch the surface of Job's story today, so I want to encourage you, check this out at some point. It's a great read. If you're ever feeling really bad about life, read Job, because I guarantee you'll feel a little bit better about your situation when you realize what he went through. And we're, again, we're just going to look at a little bit of it today. But Job just has one of the, the toughest stories I think you ever read in the Bible. If that's not enough to get you, um, you get to read about dinosaurs in Job. You can read about a dragon in Job. There's a dragon in the Bible. It's here. So if you want to check that out, read Job. And the best part is I'm not going to even tell you how the story ends today. So I'm not going to spoil it for you. Go home, read the rest of the book, and find out what Job's story looks like after he decides to make some decisions based on what God does with him. So Job chapter 1, we're just going to get an idea of his story here. So there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz, and he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. Now, blameless doesn't mean he was sinless, and it's important that we know that. Only one man who walked this earth was ever sinless, and that was Jesus Blameless in this language means that he was righteous, that he did his best to walk with God. And he did everything he could to follow after what he thought God had for him. So he was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God. He stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. And he also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. So Job does his very best to walk with God, and God blesses him for it. I mean, this is the guy to know in us, apparently. If you're not sure who's doing things well, go check out Job. He is the guy who's got it down, and God is rewarding him for that. And everything's going along smoothly. And to give you an idea of Job's integrity and his character, his 10 kids, they were kids, and so they would go and party at night. And they would hold different feasts at their houses. And the next morning, while everybody is sleeping off the effects of the night before, Job is up early sacrificing on their behalf. He says, God, look, I don't know what went down last night. I'm not sure what they did. I don't know if they did something wrong. I don't know if they thought something wrong. But just in case, accept my sacrifice for them. Forgive them for what they might have done. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. And then Job's story takes this really sharp left-hand turn out of nowhere beginning in verse six. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. So we're in heaven now. And the accuser, Satan, was with them. So apparently, Satan gets to go and have conversations with Jesus and God, which is fascinating in and of itself. Uh, where were you, or where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. And Satan answers the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that goes on. And the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? Check this guy out. He's the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God. He stays away from evil. So Jesus has this chance to brag on one of his guys, and Satan says, sure. But Job has good reason to fear God. 
You've always put a wall of protection around him in his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich the man is. Reach out your hand and take away everything he has. And surely he will curse you to your face. And the Lord says, all right, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Now in this moment, I have to figure that Satan thinks he's gotten one over on God, right? Somehow he goaded God into letting him do what he wanted to do. And now Satan gets to go and wreak havoc in somebody's life. And he figures, I did this. But God's plan is always bigger than anything Satan could possibly imagine. And we only have to look at the story of Jesus to know that, right? Satan thought he had manufactured this situation where Jesus, the son of God, was gonna die because of what Satan had put together. And as Jesus dies on the cross, I can only imagine Satan going, I won, right? I killed God's son. I can't get any better than this. But we know that God used that moment to begin his plan of salvation for us. And so God's plan is always so much bigger than anything we could imagine, anything Satan could possibly imagine. So while Satan figures he's got one over on God, God has something else in store for Job. So Job is sitting at his house and Satan goes to work. And this servant comes rushing up to Job out of nowhere and says, Job, I don't know where they came from, but raiders showed up. They took all of your livestock, everything you have, your camels, your oxen, everything. It's gone. They killed your servants. They killed your farm hands. There's nothing left. On the heels of that messenger, a second shows up and says, Job, fire fell from heaven destroyed all of your sheep, burned your shepherds alive. There's nothing left. And a third shows up. Raiders from another area have come and destroyed anything that was left over. What little bit had remained from the previous two attacks are gone. And all of his household servants were slaughtered in the process. And when it seems like nothing could get any worse, one final messenger shows up and says, Job, all your kids were feasting at your oldest son's house. And a storm comes out of nowhere, knocks the house down. Everybody inside died. Nobody made it out. And Job goes from being the wealthiest man in any, anywhere in that area to losing his livelihood, to losing all of his wealth, to losing his family. He's left with nothing but himself and his wife trying to pick up the pieces. What would we do in that situation? I can't possibly imagine what it might feel like for Job losing it all at once. But what happens when sickness shows up? When somebody gets cancer? When somebody gets sick with disease? When we lose a job? When our house suddenly gets foreclosed? When something shows up unexpectedly? When we have $10 left in our checking account? and our car dies, and we've got to pay $150 to replace the alternator in order to get to a job that will help us make it through the next month. When a loved one, a parent, a child dies with no warning, how do we react in those situations? What do we do? What's our response? Job's response is something for us to, catch, to take a look at. Verse 20 says, Job stood up and tore his robes in grief. 
And then he shook his fist at God and screamed in frust. No, no, he didn't get angry with God. Then he found a quiet bar out on a side street to drink it all away and hopefully not think about it in the, no. Then he posted the entire situation on social media, hoping that somebody might feel bad for him and hopefully, no, no. That would be our response. (laughs) That's what we do when this happens. Job fell to the ground to worship. When presented with the worst news he possibly could have, Job stood up, tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. I don't know how you get handed that information and you choose to worship God But in that moment, when he could have done any number of things and been in probably the right to do it, to fall in anguish and grief, to cover himself in shame, he looks up to God first. It's his first reaction to look to God and say, God, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are. I'm going to believe that you are the God that I have followed all this time, and I am going to worship you because of it. How would our stories be different if that was our first reaction? Not that we go to God second or third, or most of the time we go to God last. He's our final resort to say, okay, God, what do you have for me in this? If our first reaction was to say, God, I don't understand what's going on, but I can't do anything about it. I need you to step in here. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about David and Bathsheba. And David and Bathsheba committed adultery. And instead of going to God first, David, who was a man after God's own heart, decides, I'm going to take care of this problem. And in the process, ends up killing Bathsheba's husband, along with several other soldiers. His firstborn son dies as a consequence. And then the rest of his reign is surrounded by war and political intrigue and strife, and his very family turn against him. And if David had chosen to go to God first, to look up to God and say, God, what do I do next? His story probably would have been different. Israel's story probably would have been different. Because when we take our eyes off of ourselves, when we take our eyes off of our own situation and we look up to God, we give him room to work a better outcome in our lives. What tends to happen is something goes wrong and we do this and say, okay, I'm gonna bury my head. I'm gonna get down there. I'm gonna fix it. Or we get just covered and weighed down by grief and we can't move forward and everything stays right here. This is what's wrong. This is where I am and I can't get out of it. And if we instead look up to God, we open ourselves up for him to move mountains in our lives. Job chose to look to God first, chose to trust that God was in control, chose to believe that God was still working behind the scenes, even when he couldn't see it happening. And Job's story doesn't end here. It gets worse. He ends up losing his health. He ends up getting stricken by this skin disease where basically he can't move without being in pain to the point where his wife says, why are you still maintaining your integrity with God? Curse God, let him kill you so at least you won't be in pain anymore. And Job says, I can't do that. He's still my God. 
these four, we'll call them friends. I use the term very loosely, but these four guys show up to talk with Job. And they show up and they say, Job, here's the deal. The only people who suffer the way you're suffering are sinners. People who have gone against God, people who have done something wrong, those are the people who suffer like this because God is punishing them. So obviously you're hiding something. So just admit to it. Tell God what you did, repent and be done with it so at least you can move forward. And Job sticks to it. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. And his friends go back and he comes back and his friends come back. And at some point, Job begins, like all of us, to question, God, why is this happening? Why am I suffering? Why am I having to go through this? And I think all of us in any sort of tough situation at some point ask, God, what's going on? Have I done something wrong? Have I caused this? Because sometimes, sometimes Job's friends are right. Sometimes we suffer because we brought it on ourselves, right? We've made bad decisions. We have to live with the consequences of sin. We've put something into action that we shouldn't have done. And so sometimes we bring that on ourselves, but that's a small percentage of it. More often than not, we suffer just due to the consequences of living in a fallen world. We suffer because sin is around us. And we've talked about the fact that sin has consequences more than just for the person who committed that sin. But the moment we brought sin into the world, this creation that God made, this amazing place was corrupted to its core by our actions and our choices. And we have to live with that fallout. Jesus talks about it in John chapter 16. He's talking with his disciples. He's telling them, hey, I'm getting ready to go to the cross. Your world's about to get turned upside down. And he says, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. He doesn't say you might run into some problems. He says you will have trials and sorrows. So this isn't an if, but a when. And it's not like you go through your one rough situation and you check it off and you're good to go. He says you will have many trials and sorrows. So Jesus gives us a heads up that guess what? Because sin exists in this world, you are going to run into issues and problems and pain and sorrow and death and sickness and disease. But don't let that be the end of your story because I have more for you. I have overcome the world. So sometimes we deal with suffering just because we live in the world that we do. Sometimes we suffer because we need to learn something. And that sounds harsh. But sometimes the situations that we are in are there so that we can become more like Jesus. That's God's end goal for us, right? And so in order for that to happen, we need to be shaped. We need to be molded. James writes, brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. So apparently, when everything's up against you, you're supposed to be super excited about it. That's not easy. <laughs> but we should look at these situations as a chance for God to turn us into something more, right? To help us reach the potential that he has for us. Because where we are right now, wherever it is, is not the end of our road. And God has so much more in store for us. So sometimes 
These hopeless situations help us become more like the people God wants us to be. And Job asks over and over again, God, why is this happening? And at some point, his friends get to be too much to him. And he crosses a line. He goes from being curious and not understanding and saying, God, why? To being indignant and God saying, God, how dare you? I'm an innocent man. I have done nothing to deserve this. How dare you cause this to happen to me? And then he begins to put words into God's mouth. He begins to tell people that God's doing this for this reason and this reason. And at that point, Job crosses a line and God actually steps into the conversation. When God starts speaking to you as you're talking to your friends, probably a good idea to listen because my guess is we've walked somewhere we shouldn't have walked. So Job is sitting there and out of this whirlwind in chapter 38, God speaks to Job. And the Lord says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you that you have to answer. God has a fantastically sarcastic sense of humor, so I don't feel so bad for mine. (laughs) He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determines its dimensions, stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations? Who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for glory? For four chapters, God says, obviously I needed your help. So where were you when I started this whole thing? Tell me how it all works. Tell me about the great beast that you guys can't bring down with a group of you. Tell me about the sea creatures that you fear when you go fishing in your tiny little vessels. And God doesn't do this to make Job feel bad about himself. That's sort of what it feels like, but that's not the case. He's not trying to make Job feel tiny and small and insignificant. He's trying to point out something. He's trying to point out the fact that there is this huge gap between creator and created, a gap that we tend to forget about all the time. We serve this amazing God who formed everything we know out of nothing with his very word that boggles the mind. We serve this incredible creator and we tend to forget that there's this gap between us and him. And God is basically saying, even if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't be able to understand it. You couldn't grasp it. Your poor little human mind would explode if I tried to explain this to you. When I think about the God we serve, God, we, we exist inside of time and space because we have to. Um, so you know, we understand things with a beginning and an end. Eternity doesn't make a lot of sense to us, even though we try. God doesn't even exist inside of eternity. God exists outside of time and space. So when God looks down at things, however he does, he doesn't see like our little timeline and go, okay, that's the, he sees it all at once. Like that makes, just blows my mind. Like, I can't grasp it. And that's what God is trying to get across to Job. He says, Job, even if I tried to explain this to you, you'd never get it. He's reminding Job of who he is, of who Job believed in before his friends got in his head, of who Job trusted. And he's trying to remind Job, you can trust me 
in all of this because I'm the God that started it all in the first place. And Job, Job is taken aback and realizes what God just said. And he says in chapter 42, Job replies, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked who is it that questioned my wisdom with such ignorance. It is I, and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. I had only heard about you before, but now, now I have seen you with my own eyes. That's an amazing statement. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. As God finishes up, Job has this amazing realization that up until now, everything he knew about God, he knew in his head. He had been blessed beyond belief by the God that he served, and he had been basically floating along on this. And in the middle of this situation, he realizes that what he knew about God, he knew here. But walking through everything that he had to walk through took that knowledge and turn it into something he internalized in his heart. And he went from knowing about God and hearing with his ears to seeing God and understanding with his heart. He said, God, now I've looked up to you and you revealed yourself to me in a new way. When we choose to look up to God in our hopeless situations, we gain a different perspective about ourselves and a different perspective about God. guy that had, was helping us fix our house up and everything because we had, a, had an old uh, Florida pine house actually and um, he came down after after the hurricane and I said to him I said Nick I really don't know where to start and he said we're gonna start right here we're gonna make one step we're gonna clean that and then we're gonna take another step we're gonna clean that and because you don't know where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do or whatever it is for me I just had I had to really look up because one of the things I've learned in all of my, uh, in my life and all the situations and everything is you go where you're looking. And so if you're, if you're focused on yourself and you're focused on your situations and all the problems that are going on, that's exactly where Satan wants you. He wants you looking at yourself and not at him. And so I, I think it's one of those things that, that you just get up and you just you start going. I would say that uh, I have a much greater understanding of God and who He is. Um, with all the chaos going on in the world, with all the chaos that's going on in, in our lives, um, He's given me a peace that I just can't, I, I, you can't explain it. The, the same solution that worked 24 years ago works today, and it worked 200 years ago, and that's looking up. You gotta continue to focus on God and not focus on yourself and not focus on your situation. There, it's it's the same thing. It doesn't have to be new, newfangled, new ideas. It's just focus on God. So God used this situation in Gary's life to help him gain new understanding about who God is. He used it to help him to learn how to find peace in the middle of some of probably the worst chaos that Gary had ever experienced. 
And later on down the road, if you know Gary and you know his story, and if you don't, I'd encourage you to talk to him sometime, but he got to put all that to use again. Because not too long ago, his daughter almost died along with her child. And they're still working through the process of that and what that looks like on a day-to-day situation. But Gary got to put all of that into action, the things he learned earlier on in that hopeless situation. That's what God offers to do for every single one of us. When we run into these things that we don't know why or how or what's going to happen next, and God says, it's okay. I will get you through this, and you will learn something about me, and you will learn something about yourself that you're going to be able to take into the rest of your life. It's one of the common themes we've heard in every single one of the stories we've heard on the videos here through this series, that every single person learns something new about God because of their hopeless situation, not in spite of it. And whatever it is that they learned, it changed them fundamentally. It changed who they were. It changed how they know God, how they understand God. It changed how they respond to people, how they respond to different situations. That's God's promise to us. Not that life is smooth and easy and ready to go. He promises that in the face of great suffering and tragedy, we can believe as Christ followers that God is orchestrating something much bigger than us and it's for our own good. And that plan is tailor-made for every single one of us. We see that, ro- that promise in Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Now that's where most people stop. That verse gets thrown around among Christians like so much confetti saying, you know what, I know it's really bad right now, but here, take some Romans 8, 28, you're gonna be okay. That's not what God is saying in this verse. You have to tag on 29 to get the full context of the promise. He says, for God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God isn't saying, you know what? I'm just gonna make it all better for you. He's saying, I will use any situation you come into, good or bad, to make you more like my son because that's the ultimate goal. And what was Jesus' story? Was it easy? Was it pain-free? No. We follow a poor carpenter's son who spent a few adult years doing everything he could to share the story of God and then gave up his life in one of the most painful ways possible for us. That's God's promise to us that I will use every situation in your life to make you more like my son. And that process looks different for every single one of us, but the steps to getting there and to getting out of the hopelessness we find ourselves in and to finding what God has for us in those situations are the same. And the cool part about Job is that Job actually employed every single one of the things that we've talked about through this series. He trusted God. Now, I know that changed a little later on, but he trusted God right from the forefront, knowing that God is bigger than him. He praised God in the midst of the worst situation I could possibly imagine, losing everything, including 10 children 
all at once, and he chooses to worship God in the middle of it. He repents. When he steps too far, he goes out of line, he recognizes and he says, God, I did the wrong thing here. Help me turn away from it. He believes that God is working and in control despite everything he sees around him. And through it all, he looks up to God. He looks to God for his next step. He looks to God for what's to come. He looks to God for an answer. Gary said, you go where you're looking. And I think that is so true of our walk in life that when we keep our heads down and we keep our eyes on the problem that we're in the midst of, we stay stuck in that problem. We never get to get out of our hopeless situation. Or if we do, it comes back to haunt us over and over and over again because our hearts and our minds are so stuck there. And so decades down the road, we're going, man, remember that terrible thing that happened? And that becomes our story. But if we look up to God, then we can move forward with him and he can take our hopeless situation and give us hope. This morning, we're gonna sing one more song together. And it just focuses on looking up to God, choosing to look to him no matter what our situation is. So as we pray and then as we sing together, let God speak to your heart about moving forward with him and not staying stuck where you are right now. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be changed by you. Father, when we find ourselves in terrible situations that we don't know how to get out of, we can believe and trust that you are bigger than us and God, that you have a bigger plan in store for us. That you know more than we do and God, that we can believe that of you. And Father, I pray this morning for anyone here who finds themselves in a hopeless situation, that you would begin to show them hope. God, that you would show them what you have for them. Show them that this isn't the end of their story, that they have more because of you, and that, God, you would begin to walk them out of the darkness they find themselves in and into light once again. Father, thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that you would work in our lives in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Thank you, Father God, for this moment. Thank you so much that you take us from hopelessness to hope. And Father, I pray that we would walk out of here just knowing that you go before us. And Father, that we can be lighter because of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for coming out this morning. You made it through five weeks of hopelessness. So go out, have a great week. Have a wonderful 4th of July. We'll see you guys next Sunday. Take care.